This is Tiffany O'Donnell, the CEO of Women Lead Change, and welcome to the Own It podcast. On today's episode, we'll be talking with Dr. Angela Franklin, who became Des Moines University's 15th president in the spring of 2011. She's a native of McCormick, South Carolina, and a graduate of Furman University. A licensed clinical psychologist, she completed her PhD in clinical psychology at Emory University, followed by a year-long clinical internship at Grady Memorial Hospital. She's also the only person I know who's moved a university, and I mean geographically moved a university. Dr. Angela Franklin, thank you so much for being with us on the Own It podcast. Thank you, Tiffany. It's a pleasure to be with you today. And if I can think of anybody who owns it, it is Dr. Franklin. You you landed in the middle of Iowa and you're, you're far from home. You're far <laughs> I, from home. I am. I'm a South Carolinian, small town girl from little town McCormick, South Carolina, about four or 5,000 strong. Um, that's my home. My parents still live there in that little town that I grew up in. Wow. It's an interesting journey here. Um, I never imagined, I never heard of Des Moines University. I never been to the, to, to Iowa. I actually, at the time that I was approached about this opportunity, I was in Nashville, Tennessee at the time at Meharry Medical College, a very similar institution, Health Sciences University. And um, I was the provost, uh, the chief academic officer and, and the executive vice president at the time. So I was sort of chief academic officer and chief operating officer, sort of all wrapped into one role. And that was a role that I enjoyed, had some aspirations for a college presidency, but as a clinical psychologist, PhD, having seen most presidents of health sciences universities being physicians, I never imagined I would be able to be a president of a health sciences university. So I was looking at opportunities in more traditional comprehensive universities, thinking that that would be my path. Well, as I started being nominated for college presidencies, and that's the process that you go through, someone noteworthy figure in higher ed typically nominates you for it. So a lot of my mentors start nominating me for college presidencies. As I was being nominated, I was running into the real interesting dilemma of in the South, which is where I preferred staying closer to family and, and friends, there was a real interesting question that was arising. Someone that looked like me, a woman of color, you know, how ready would that institution be to name me president? And I ran into some interesting challenges in interviews, some interesting questions about how do you think you could survive in this environment being a woman of color? Our alumni may not welcome you. I had some pretty bold things stated to me in interviews as I pursued some presidencies in the South. So I thought, well, gosh, they won't be ready for me. So I set my sights on the West Coast. So after I got nominated for some presidencies, outside of the South, I started getting a different reception. And it was pretty amazing. You know, I didn't expect that, but it's not surprising that in some parts of the country, um, unless it would be a historically black college or university, people would question whether or not the campus community would really support someone that looked like me. Angela, before we go on, were you surprised by that reaction in the South? I mean, this is your home. You know, when you get to a point that you prepare yourself for something and you believe your credentials puts you in a position of being qualified for the job, you like to believe that people still judge you based on the content of your character, the preparation and experiences you bring to the table and not the color of your skin. Unfortunately, I had that rude awakening that unfortunately, and given the role, 
And given the fact that some of the places that I was pursuing, they were not comfortable with that. And if they can't trust that the person in the senior seat in the leadership role of the institution, that they have trust in that person's leadership, it's not a place for me to go. That was pretty clear to me as I pursued some of those. And it was a rude awakening for me. And I guess I was hopeful that that wouldn't be the case. But I had a totally different, different response when I started exploring outside of the South. So my first opportunity was in California. Um, I had been nominated for a, a presidency at a university in California. And I was thinking, this is it. We're going to California because I had a totally different response and reception there. The campus was open and welcoming and excited for my candidacy. Then it became a matter of what would the board of trustees choose? So I was one of two finalists. These search firms that manage presidential searches, they keep a record of candidates and they have profiles of prospective candidates. And as I was getting closer and closer to being offered the job in this institution in California, what I did know is that Des Moines University hired the same firm. And Des Moines University was looking for someone with a background in the health sciences. And I had that background, but I was pursuing a different kind of institution presidency. And then it became a matter of there are two finalists, that happened to be me, and a provost from a big name, big university, African-American woman, Caucasian woman, two finalists for this presidency. And I remember thinking, wow, they're going to go for the big name person. Again, this sense of doubt that whereas I had a great experience on campus, I felt good about the experience. My family was excited about the prospects of going to California. I thought they're going to likely pick the person with, from the big name institution. Two women, one of color, one not. And I waited and waited. And I remember talking to my mentor. And I remember saying to him, I'm not sure why I'm being held. But it seems like they're dragging out this decision. And I remember he asked, well, what was your reception like on campus? And I said, well, I got a warm reception from the faculty and the staff and the students. But I think the board I hear is really interested in this big name person. And Dr. Sullivan said to me, the board would be the final deciding body in this. And if the board doesn't see you as the number one choice, so withdraw from the search. And I thought, oh my gosh, I'm a finalist. I'm one of the final two. How can I withdraw from the search? He said, you don't want this position. Withdraw from the search. I agonize over that decision, but those words resonate with me to this day because he said, you don't want to play second fiddle to anyone. And you should go where you want it. And if the board is likely leaning toward that big name individual, and you may be the backup plan, you don't want that. After a night of agonizing over it, I formally withdrew from the search. That same firm that had consultants working within that was handling Des Moines University's search, they called me. And this person said, I'm calling because I have a wonderful opportunity for you to explore. And by then, you know, you're wounded. You're thinking, well, I got this close and I couldn't make it. I have to withdraw. I still have some feelings about that. But this person said, but no, we're interested in you. There's another search going on. I said, well, how do you even know about me? And they said, we are in the same firm. This other search committee was looking and watching to see what would happen to you in this search. And they were waiting because they're looking for someone just like you with a health sciences background. And I said, well, health sciences background, I'm not a physician. They're not going to want me. And they said, no, they are interested in you. Take a look. 
And I remember thinking, I'm a little bit wounded now. So you're sort of licking your wounds a little bit. You know, I'm not really sure if you want to do this again, because it's draining to go through these experiences. And that had been the closest I had gotten. So I thought, well, I can compete well now. So maybe my confidence builds now. I said, but I put them on hold. I said, I'm not interested. I am not ready to take on another search at this point. I'm going to kind of lay low a little bit and wait and maybe there'll be another opportunity. They kept calling me. I didn't know at the time it was Des Moines University. It's funny to hear the stories from the board after the fact that they said, go get her. <laughs> so within a few weeks, I called back because they've been pestering me about this job. And I said, okay, <laughs> send me the information. I'll take a look. It must've been a month later, I finally looked at it. I remember he called and I opened up the profile at my desk and I said, where in the world is Des Moines University? He said, Des Moines, Iowa. I said, you got to be kidding me. That began the process. And I remember thinking they're pursuing you and there's something about your record that they're interested in. Now, I never would have imagined having the opportunity to consider coming to an institution like this. The first thing I told the guy was they wouldn't want me because they probably want a physician. And I remember him saying, well, they've had more PhD presidents. They've even had a JD, the former governor, has been president of this university. So they've had a very diverse group of university presidents. And they are interested in you because of your background. You've only done health sciences. You've prepared yourself for such a position as this. That's how it happened. So needless to say, I finally, with a lot of thoughts with my family, about the idea of moving to the Midwest, I'd never been to Iowa before, had not heard of the university, but it became this journey, almost divine intervention, that it was meant to be that I was supposed to be here for all the right reasons. And the excitement continues. Yeah, it's been almost 10 years now. So I came in the door saying, we've got to do something different here. We've got to get the word out. We've got to start with focusing on quality of the educational experiences, not just meet accreditation standards, but surpass them. So that was my mantra coming in the door. Let's transform this organization. Let's get the word out about what's very unique and special about Des Moines University. And then let's let the world know. So here we are in this unique opportunity now to really branch out and talk about dreaming big, to say, we're just going to take this place and blow it up <laughs> and bring it to a totally new paradigm. Uh, Dr. Franklin led the charge to literally move a university, physically move a university, which in and itself, it's kind of hard to say for me. I can't imagine what that was like initially for you. I was in my eighth year as president at the time, and the average length of stay for a university president is about six years. So I'm one of the longer serving university presidents, which is odd to say. Um, so I got into my eighth year here and I started contemplating, well, I've done some great things here. I feel good about the um, engagement that I've had. We've had some wonderful um, growth in terms of quality and actual accomplishments. We've done quite well with accreditation. We've done quite well with our student outcomes. Our students perform quite well with the match and with their board scores. So I could check off some great things that happen in my tenure here. So I was contemplating, well, what's next for me? But then it became an issue of what's next for the university. And there had been some desire for some years to add some new degree programs. And then we realized in order to add one new degree program, it would warrant some different dynamics on campus in terms of facilities, parking was getting restricted. Students in the past started moving away from our campus 
we had a real challenge with being able to have facilities to accommodate the current class size, let alone the idea of adding new degree programs. So we were not in a position to add any new degree program because we had constraints of our facilities, very dated facilities. Beautiful, yeah, if you pass along, our campus looks fresh and new compared to a lot of universities. Our youngest building was done in 2005. Our oldest is only in the 1980s. So we are a very new campus here. So we are here in a residential community and we're landlocked. So we have these two major challenges constricted parking and not ability to grow degree programs to bring more students here, and difficulty figuring out how do we spread our wings to grow given the footprint that we have. What do you do? So I remember having a conversation with my board and they said, well, what would you want us to do? I said, if only we had more space. If only we had land to grow. I mean, we're landlocked. We're in a residential community. It's difficult to do anything where we are. And maybe we've done all I can, I can do. And I remember the, the next question of my chair was, so what do you suggest? I said, well, only we can go out and find some land somewhere, maybe 40 acres, maybe double the size. And I remember my chair said, well, go do that then. Because I think the message that came through loud and clearly was, we've yet to see you realize this dream you've been talking about. You've been talking about dreaming big from the moment you arrived here. What does big look like to you now? And I said, we need to be able to imagine the health sciences university of the future. We should not have facilities that get dated in 20 years. The way medical education is evolving, the way we should be training students of the future is evolving. So we need a space that's flexible, that can evolve with time, but also bring in these new emerging technologies. We'll get back to our conversation in just a minute. I want to let you know about a few conference opportunities for you. Uh, the Central Iowa Conference is coming up on October 28th, and that is featuring fan favorite Elizabeth Gilbert. Uh, the Quad Cities Conference, November 10th, has Carla Harris. If you've seen Carla from Morgan Stanley, you know she's got quite a story and some tactical tips on how to embrace our own pearls of wisdom. Well, you've clearly, I mean, you've been a huge part of that, Dr. Franklin. I, I just wonder if you ever imagined this position for yourself. When I was getting ready for our conversation today, I came across a photo, and it's you as a mascot at a high school graduation. And all I kept thinking is we talk a lot about sometimes having to see it to be it or setting a paradigm. Mm -hmm. I just have to wonder if that action inspired in some way where you are. You know, I, I share that picture. It's probably so uh, out on social media now because I've shared that picture in a number of presentations. And my mother's an educator. You know, she was a six, sixth grade English teacher. And they would always identify a little kid to lead the graduating class in. And so there I am in my cap and gown at that young age. And then I share the difference of me being in a cap and gown leading a processional here at Des Moines University. And I talk about it from the perspective of what could have been in the mind of this little kid who never would have imagined. And I had all the doubts. Women typically have a lot of doubts. I probably was more prepared for the role than most, but I doubted that I could do the job or they would even select me for the job. Because remember, I gone through a lot of very direct, candid comments about whether or not an institution that's not a historically black college or university, a majority white institution, would even trust my leadership. So I'd gone through that with some very candid conversations. I can tell the story of being in a 
major audit in an auditorium do my presentation to a campus as one of the finalists for a presidency in a small town in the south for a small liberal arts institution and do my best you know, presentation about what I, my vision would be for the university. And then in the Q&A, have someone ask the question, and they started this way. They said, do you know where you are? And I thought, I was trying to remember the name of the auditorium, and I thought, gosh, what's the name of this auditorium? And they said, no, we're not talking about physically where you are right now, but do you know where you are? Because you're in the South. And I was in Mississippi. And I remember saying, well, yes. And they said, well, you're a black woman in the South at an institution that has predominantly white alumni. Just what makes you think our alumni and friends of this institution would give you money for this institution? My heart sank. But I'm in an auditorium with three or 400 people, and that's the question I get. Somehow I found the strength to not be sarcastic. <laughs> and just answer from this place of making an assumption that the people who know and love this institution and support its cause, it should not matter the color of the skin of the person who sits in the seat, that that person is really the cheerleader, the, the person that markets and supports and gets the word out. But people will be given to the institution and, and all that it represents. And it should not matter the color of skin of the person who happens to be sitting in the seat. You know, who was this person? She was a faculty member. She, and, <laughs> she was a faculty member. Okay, I'm speechless. Yes. The only other person of color in the auditorium was my husband. And my husband was sitting with the chairman of the board at the time. I, after answering the question, the chairman of the board stood up and started clapping. I got a round, a round of applause and a sort of a standing ovation. Mm -hmm. But at that point, I knew there's no way, no way. They could have chosen you. And I would just hope that you would have just turned on your heels and said, yeah, <laughs> no, not doing no. this. Yeah. No. Oh, wow. Yeah. It was, it was really a rude awakening. It was sort of the gut punch that you, you know, is out there. You didn't think anybody would be bold enough to do it. And, you know, unfortunately the, the world we live in today is just playing out even more drastically that the boldness of people's commentary. And that was 10 years ago. That is not that long ago. No. It's so important that you share that story. It's just really important because I, I just sit here and think, wow, I can't, I can't even believe someone would do that. And I'm sure you have more, more stories than that. You know, so, interestingly, too, when you came to Iowa, I think, what are we, somewhere 3% minority rate or something in this state? I mean, it is not an obvious choice for a woman of color to come and be a university president. How did Des Moines University recruit you? Well, I have a funny story to tell that's heartfelt because I think this is what made the difference for me. And I remember coming in September 2010, but what did it for me, the faces of the people on the committee when I walked in for the interview. So they were all smiling and beaming when I walked in the door and I thought, wow, okay, I didn't expect that. Because sometimes you go in the interview and people are busy writing or fumbling with papers and you know, it's like, oh, the next candidate's here. But they were all like ready. So when I walked in, I was struck by the smiles that I got. Because I guess I wasn't sure if this really made sense for me, I didn't come in thinking, oh, I got to nail it. I got to nail it. I got to get this. This job is for me. I got to go for it. And sometimes when you least expect it, when you're not really trying so hard. So I was a little bit more relaxed because I thought, you know, I've done this so many times now and I'm tired. I wasn't sure if I really wanted to do this one but they're so nice. They're just smiling. And it became a great conversation. The time went by so fast. I don't even recall feeling 
that they were peppering me with questions, it felt like a conversation. So the time was up and I was told, well, thank you so very much, Dr. Franklin, for your time today. And I got up and I was escorted out. But since I had to stay overnight, I stayed in the hotel that night to fly out the next morning. So I remember the search consultant, and I remember he greeted me at the end. He said, you did a great job. That was wonderful. It was like a conversation. You did a good job. I said, well, thank you very much. Appreciate it. They were nice people. you know. And I thought, well, I'll probably never see them again. I decided to write a nice little handwritten thank you note. That next morning, as I was leaving to go back to the airport to fly back to Nashville, I stuck my handwritten note under the door of the search consultant for him to give to the search committee. And, you know, you're always told to write a note, you know, send a nice little thank you note. But I'm like, I'm right here. I may never hear from them again. They're probably going to send me a little nice little so sorry message. But I want them to know how much I they made me feel welcome and comfortable. I landed back in Nashville like 1.30 or so that day. And as I was driving back home, my phone rings. And it's a number I didn't recognize. And the search consultant says, well, hi, Dr. Franklin. We just want to let you know that they selected you as one of the finalists. And I said, but I just got, I just got home. Yeah. <laughs> said, you know, I said, aren't you still interviewing people? And they said, well, they interviewed a few people after you left. And they had a few this morning, but they've now convened to review the candidates. And you are one of their final three. And I thought, well, that's so lovely. So, of course, then I get invited back. So I come back in October for my on-campus experience. And that's when they really rolled out the red carpet. And I didn't know quite what to expect because I'd been in the same position in other institutions, but this felt different. It felt like they were very sincere. They really wanted me to feel comfortable being here. I did the same you know, series of meetings and campus presentation, but it felt more relaxed. And I remember thinking, this feels good. Beautiful campus. I get to see the city. And I'm thinking, well, this is a cute little place. Nice people. They're all smiling. And I, I remember thinking, they're always, always so nice. And that's the Iowa nice I've come to learn about, right? So I thought this was different. So as I was finishing up my time, I had a totally different dynamic in the on-campus presentation, auditorium of people who were there to hear my presentation, and it felt good. I had some questions, nothing like I had in, in the previous experience, so it felt good. And then the final event was a community reception. There was one Black staff member at the time, and I thought, okay, the one Black guy takes my husband around town. I was like, okay, I get it. I understand. They want them to know that there's some other people of color here. So my husband had been taken around a city tour with this staff member while I was on campus. What was strange is that at the end of the day, we were taken back to the hotel to dress for this reception. The same black staff member came to pick me up and I thought, okay, so he's just going to be our escort. And at first, I was a little bothered by that, that the one black staff person is the one that's escorting us around. And I said, so what do I expect from this community reception? He said, well, there are going to be a lot of people there. And I said, well, where are we going? He said, well, um, we're going out to West Des Moines. And I thought, okay. I didn't say much more, but when, then we started going to a residential community. And I thought, what, where is this reception? And he smiled and he said, at my house. And I thought, that's strange. They would have you host the reception at your home. Probably know Willie Glanton, our, yes. our now deceased Willie Glanton, who was a trailblazer in this Legend. community. Yep. She was on the board of trustees when I was selected. Willie Glanton had this bright idea, and she convinced the chairman of the board to do something special. 
So we get out of the car and at the doorway is Mrs. Glanton. And I didn't recognize her from pictures. And I thought, well, Mrs. Glanton's at your house. And he just laughed. He said, yes, wait until you get inside and we'll tell you what we're going to do. So Mrs. Glanton greeted me at the door and she said, welcome. And I said, wow, you know, I didn't expect to find you here. She said, well, Dwayne offered us, allowed us to use his home, um, but we want you to come on in and meet others who are here that are wanting to greet you. They had invited every person of color for miles around. There were lawyers and doctors and ministers wow. and churches. The house was packed with black people. <laughs> and I remember thinking, oh my gosh, I never thought there'd be that many and they're yes. all in one place, right? Yes, yes. But they were all packed in this house. Renee Hartman was there. Suku Radia was there. People who are, were prominent in this community. Yes. And they said, we know what you're thinking. And, and they say, you're probably thinking you didn't expect to find this many black people in Iowa, right? <laughs> and I thought, well, you know, I'm glad you all said it. That's right. You know, it was the warmest reception. And I said, you know, I don't have the job. I'm not. They said, we know that. Uh, and I said, but I'm one of three finalists. I don't know whether I'll get the job. So, of course, it, that doubt is there. I'm thinking, well, they have two other choices. May not be me. And they said, we know that, but we're so excited about your candidacy. We wanted you to know that if you're offered the position in this community, there are other people who will be here to support you. Wow. That was the most heartfelt thing I could have ever imagined. And we had a great time just chit-chatting and just kind of getting to know people in the community. The chairman of the board, he called me when I got back to the hotel. He said, what did you think about that reception? (laughs) And I said, I thought that was wonderful. He said, I'm glad you liked it. He said, because Willie Glanton and I thought we wanted to make sure you knew there'd be people here to support you. Now, when I tell that story, some people are a bit offended by that, thinking, well, gosh, you know, isn't that kind of a little bit patronizing, a little bit, you know, inappropriate to do Mm -hmm. something like that? I said, no, as a woman of color, yeah, you don't know what that means to me. And that's what we say all the time when we talk about recruiting diverse populations. People need to feel welcome. It's not the seed, it's the soil. How nurturing and supportive is that environment? And if they went that far to make sure I felt I would be comfortable in this environment, that meant a lot to me. The fact that I'm still here and I'm still excited about this next chapter to move this campus, to imagine this dream I've been dreaming about for the longest, to be able to create a health sciences university from the ground up mm-hmm. uh, is pretty remarkable. We'll get back to Dr. Franklin in just a minute. We're going to be closing out season one of Own It from Women Lead Change in just two weeks with the one and only Mel Robbins. That's right, Mel Robbins. You don't want to miss that one. You know, you, you talk about kind of the, the way that, that we are today and, and the conversations we're having with, you know, racial justice. How are we doing? How are we doing 10 years after you had that experience in the auditorium? We're not doing so well at all. You know, it's really sad. It's, it's, it's heartbreaking. One thing I can say that we've done at DMU and we still work on it every day, every week, you have to keep the lines of communication open. You have to be bold enough to have the tough conversation. There needs to be very deliberate effort. It's so easy to say, oh, I don't see color, you know, I treat everybody the same. Now, if you're not recognizing the experience of people of color being distinctly different and the advantages that others would have who are, don't look like me and others of color, then you're really just diminishing the issue. 
for me personally, it's, it's, it was a challenge for me to not have people understand why the phrase Black Lives Matter meant something. Because people would want to say, well, all lives matter, right? Well, Black people are part of all, right? So if all lives matter, Black people shouldn't be feeling disenfranchised, disrespected, challenged in ways that others couldn't imagine. To have someone like me or other professional women still experience it, if I'm not sitting in my seat, and sometimes I can drive around this town here in Des Moines in a car that has DMU one on the tag and have still some sense of people discrediting me or challenging me or making racial slurs at me in this community still, then there's something wrong. And I think people diminish it and make it seem like it's not a big to do. And we get all caught up in the hype of the, the negative spin as opposed to seeing what the real issues are. Mm -hmm. So at DMU, we try to come from a place of valuing and celebrating the difference. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And we welcome everyone. And we really try to focus on this environment of everyone being welcomed. Inclusivity is a core value for us. Um, Respect for everyone is is essential to who we are as an institution. Um, So you can't be respectful of everyone and not acknowledge the fact that some people aren't treated the same. Right, right. Uh, so there is systemic racism. So for people to say there's no such thing, it's like you're essentially just whitewashing everything mm-hmm. that's been my, my lived experience. Right. So how can you deny my lived experience? And mine is nowhere near the challenge of a lot of people out there. Mm-hmm. I've had some privilege myself as a woman of color who came up in an environment that supported education and I had resources to do. There are a number of us who have some privilege Mm -hmm. because of our backgrounds, but it doesn't diminish the fact that there are others who don't have the same advantages. And if all matter, we should be worried about all of them. I'm wondering if you think somehow this time it's different. I mean, there have been movements, you know, in the past I'm on the outside, and I just wonder if it feels different. Is it? I think I I feel the difference as well, because I I think the difference where there's hope for me now. And maybe it was because of the pandemic, and we were all very vulnerable and emotional, being shut down. And it was an Mm -hmm. opportunity to see things very differently because we had common experiences. Mm -hmm. So everyone's kind of locked in. Everyone's afraid. Everyone's worried about where's the new normal. When are we going to get back to something that feels right? And we start seeing things with a new lens. And I think the lens that even happened on our campus here was that people were paying attention more. They were Mm -hmm. willing to listen. And all you need to do is stop and listen and watch the stories and listen carefully for the patterns that are there. So as a mother of three sons, I had to have the talk um, about what it means to be a young black male in this, this United States of America. When people on my campus hear me share my story of the vulnerabilities and the worries of a black mother raising three young men and what their experiences are, people will make an assumption that, oh, you're fine, right? You know, you're president of DMU, you don't have these experiences. But I think it penetrates in a way when you realize that the people that you know and respect even, and I think I have people on my campus who know and respect me here, the pain that I share, and sometimes it means sharing and being vulnerable and sharing your lived experience with those who want to understand and appreciate hearing, it makes a difference. So we've had pretty open conversations on campus. We're doing it with a Zoom on a Zoom screen. So 
and being able to have our students to say what their experiences are. And then in the context of that, I started seeing the voices of the people who were speaking out against, are not just voices that come from people that look like me. Mm-hmm. So when the voices now are people that are, are white, who have the privilege, who, who have, have now seen it differently, that makes a difference. So that's the hope that I see now, that people I think are getting on board. And it's now not just those people people who are rioting in the streets and who are, it's, it's regular people that, that now are sharing. And some people get exhausted for sharing. It's like, it shouldn't be my responsibility to make sure you understand. But I'm more open to sharing so that people see that it doesn't matter what degrees I may have. The world still sees me as a Black woman. And if I go into a department store to this day, in some parts of the country, I'm followed. Or I'm not allowed to pick clothes off or a rack until they come and take them away to put them in a dressing room for me. Whereas I see other women holding things. That's my experience today. So those are the experiences that are lived experiences and they may be small in some minds, but you compound that with your existence every day, all the time. And if you don't have the opportunity some of us have, it makes it more real for those who can imagine. So I just ask people to listen, listen to the stories, because that's the only way you can learn and and know that there's some validity in it. And it's not just a hoax. It's not just, you know, a group of angry people who wanted to just riot in the streets. There's some real systemic issues around racism in this country that have yet to be dealt with. I do have hope for the future because I see that there are more people who are, are understanding now and willing to go the next layer mm-hmm. to, to look beneath the, the veil to see what's really happening there. On that note, Dr. Franklin, I think we'll we'll conclude this this interview. It's been so interesting and enlightening, and as always, you are honest and authentic, and and occasionally vulnerable, and that is powerful. I think you're spot on. And if I could see the chair of the board that made that amazing decision ten years ago, well done, DMU. Well done. Thank you, thank you. Well, I'm excited today, just as I was. 10 years ago, to be the president of Des Moines University. We have an amazing opportunity ahead of us. It still feels new and fresh and exciting. I really believe I'm here for a reason, and this is my purpose. I lied. One last quick question for you. What is your superpower, and how do you own it? I think my superpower would be a sincere, genuine desire to be of service to others. I come at everything that I do from a place of not just about me, but about being of service to others. And that's a true testament of what servant leadership is all about. We're here to serve, not to be served. And so everything I do comes from that backdrop, even down to how I create and form a leadership team on campus. I don't have a hierarchical kind of system of a president's cabinet and all these different layers. I have more of a flat organizational structure. It's really a team effort. So it's more collaborative, it's more engaging. So I think first about how are you with each other and how are the relationships and what value we bring to the table by everyone contributing. So I think that whole focus, and it's kind of the way I'm wired, I think instinctively. And I think that's probably my my superpower, you know, coming from that place of being of service. It's a good one. I would guess that too. You live that every day. Dr. Franklin, best of luck with the move of DMU. We'll look forward to incredible things to come. Thank you so very much. I really enjoy talking with you. 
I always learn something new from Dr. Franklin. And what a cool story about how the citizens of the Des Moines Metro were able to convince her to come to Central Iowa. The great story. A reminder to follow Women Lead Change on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. And if you haven't already, give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. We would appreciate that so much. For more information on all things WLC, go to wlcglobal.org.